the microphone and I have come to an understanding. When Laura and I, my wife Laura and I, were, were uh, dating many years ago, we uh, had this dynamic going on where I was really into her and I was eager to move the relationship along and Laura was at a place of wanting to and really needing to maintain an appropriate level of distance because she did not have the same level of clarity about the relationship that I had. <laughs> so... I remember at one point when we were out on a date and I was attempting to pay for her, for her yet again and she whipped out her credit card and she said with a smile, I'm independently wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that kind of strength, it was that kind of wit that made her even more attractive, <laughs> drove me crazy and what I realized later, what I realized potentially in the moment, but also as we got to know each other, was that what Laura was saying when she said, I'm independently wealthy and I'm not going to accept a gift from you right now, was she was saying, I'm independent. And in fact, I need to remain independent right now. I'm not ready to be, to be linked with you. And when you, Aaron, give me a gift, even if it's for paying something as, as small as a latte, you are uh, economically seeking to have a deeper emotional relationship with me. Right now I'm independent. And the way I'm going to maintain that independence is by being independently wealthy and paying for my own stuff. Now, thankfully, over time, I used my Corsican charm <laughs> and wooed her uh, one step at a time, slow and steady, and... There came a point where Laura was, was ready to, to, to be united in marriage to me, um, which was one of the great gifts of my, of my life. And when that happened, we went from being independently wealthy and independent in our wealth to being deeply united in our wealth. And in fact, we uh, combined bank accounts. We started to give and be generous together. We started to take on financial responsibility together. We began paying off debts together. And if you were to ask Laura and I, what's, what's been some of the, the richest expressions of your marriage so far, both of us would, would probably tell you stories about how God led us to be generous and blessed us through that generosity, or about how God made a way for us to focus in on paying off debts, paying off three debts before we moved away and um, went off on an adventure together. Uh, there have been so many ways where the essence of our marriage has been expressed through our financial unity. That our, the intimacy that we have as husband and wife has been expressed through our financial intimacy and our financial union. Now, wouldn't it have been odd if Laura and I were to get married and we were to say, you know what, our relationship is, is more, you know, it's, it's a relationship. It's personal. It's emotional. Uh, it's not really financial. There's no real financial component to our relationship. Let's leave that out, and let's keep the purity of our relationship as it is. And let's not get messy with finances. Let's just go deep. Let's go as deep as we can without finances. We would have, have limited our union. We would have limited our love. We would have limited our intimacy. There is a lie that many of us believe that I've 
found myself buying into at different points in my life. And the lie is this. My relationship with God doesn't need a financial component to thrive. My relationship with God doesn't need to have a financial expression to go deep and to thrive. If we believe this lie, we believe that uh, potentially that worship and prayer can be separate from our finances. That our relationship with the living God is only spiritual and isn't financial at all. And if we, if we buy into that life, we separate prayer from finances, if we separate worship of God from finances, if we separate um, the, uh, the spirituality expression of our relationship with God from finances, we miss out on the intimacy with God. We miss out on a, a fundamental expression of intimacy with God when we leave the financial component out when we think of it as dirty, when we think of it as something that we can forget, when we stop talking about it, and we, when we stop engaging financially with the Lord. Here's two reasons why. Number one, we, we stop seeing God's gifts to us. It's uh, uh, one of the primary expressions of the Christian life is recognizing and giving thanks for the fact that God is providing for us in practical ways. It's one of the ways that God wants us to feel His love. And you've felt love before as someone that you know well has, has given you a gift to express the fact that they care about you, that they've thought about you. God wants us to experience that uh, through his provision when he provides for us. He wants us to recognize it and know it. And when we, when we separate God and finances, we miss those moments. Secondly, we miss a camaraderie with God there is a special camaraderie that we share with God when we are able to, to give with Him, to participate in generosity with Him. Um, and over time, it just becomes us and our money, which has a profoundly isolating effect. It becomes us and our money. Um, some of you have, uh, have, um, have seen movies, or maybe you've actually uh, done this yourself, where you're interacting with someone in prison, you see someone who's on the outside of prison interacting with someone who's on the inside of prison, and the way they interact is through a plate of glass over the phone. And they can have a conversation, they can have some kind of connection, but there's a plate of bulletproof glass that separates these two people. And until that glass can be broken through, unless the, the, you know, the person who is in prison can be broken out of prison, there can't be the level of intimacy and union and connection uh, until that happens. What happens when we become isolated with our money, when we think of it as, you know what, I got this myself. The money that I have is from me, from my activity, from my hard work. Um, it's basically a cause and effect situation. This really isn't from God. There's a, a great Bart Simpson prayer where he prays before the meal in The Simpsons and he, he says something to the effect of, Lord, thank you for this food, but we bought it anyway. Um, and I remember hearing that prayer and going, man, I sometimes really feel that. Um, it's a tempting thing to believe. We got it ourselves. But when we think of money possessions as we got this ourselves, we become isolated with the money and in fact begin to relate with it in the same way that we're meant to relate with God. Relationship of trust, a relationship of wonder, a relationship that is dynamic. We begin to look to money um, with, the, uh, with the same kind of heart yearnings that we need to look to the Lord to. 
Um, and what the Lord does is he breaks through that bulletproof glass to have union with us. He makes it possible for us to move from a place of financial isolation to a place of profound financial intimacy. From a place of financial isolation where we think of money as our own, that we earned it and it belongs to us, to a place of profound financial intimacy where we are united as in a marriage, giving with God, receiving gifts from God, where instead of saying, God, I'm independently wealthy, we're saying, God, all that I have belongs to you. Because that's exactly what God is saying to us. He says to us, all I have is yours. We talked a little bit last week. Uh, I encourage you to listen to the message if, if, um, if you haven't already. It's available on our Facebook page. That God basically gave everything to us. He gave us the very blood of Christ. And that is what breaks through that bulletproof glass. That is what breaks through our isolation and brings us to a place of financial intimacy. That is, it is the work of God from first to last. And we're going to explore that today in our text here in 2 Corinthians. I invite you to turn to your text there. Just turn back a couple of pages. And let's look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 15. There's a saying that begins this passage that describes the dynamic that I've been describing right now, and that is this. Paul says to the Corinthian church, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever reaps sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, uh, we might read this and go, okay, if I'm going to move from a place of sowing sparingly and reaping sparingly to a place of sowing bountifully, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Maybe we think that, as Americans, we think that financially. I'm going to have to um, become a better investor so that I can get more money. Or maybe even fill in, we might even be thinking philanthropically, like, oh, I need to give more in order to demonstrate that I'm a good person so that by the end of my life, I feel like I've lived a good life. Um, that kind of thinking is a dead end. It's wonderful to save. It's wonderful to invest. I encourage both of those things. It's also really a really uh, great thing to be philanthropic. Chicago is a wonderful philanthropic city. A lot of generous people in this city. Um, but what the Lord wants to do is to move us to his sowing and reaping bountifully. In our own strength, we cannot generate generosity. We have to first and last receive the generosity of the Lord and let him move us through the blood of his son, through our redemption to a place, from a place of isolation to a place of intimacy with him. And he'll do that in two ways. The first way he'll do that is he will give freely. He will give freely. And that is where we begin to taste and see that the Lord is good. That is where we begin to experience the gospel. That's when we begin to feel the Nicene Creed that Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We experience that when God gives gifts. And Paul describes that for the Corinthian church um, here uh, when he says this in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is able to make all grace abound to you. This is not only a word for the Corinthian church. This is also a word for our church. God is able to make all grace abound to us. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God wants you to abound in good work. God wants you to sow and reap uh, bountifully. 
but he gives you the opportunity to do that. And uh, verse 10 answers the question of how he does that. Verse 10 says this, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So the grace of God through Jesus reaches us and we experience that in very practical ways. Um, God supplies money for us to give. Paul is telling the Corinthian church, your assets are from the Lord. Receive them as a gift. Don't think of them as something that you've earned. Receive them as a gift. Uh, Additionally, God provides very, very practical things like bread and like seed. We'll talk about this in a few minutes, but bread was incredibly expensive in the ancient world, uh, mostly due to famines, as well as they didn't have the practices that we have now making food a lot more inexpensive. In, in Jerusalem, uh, the church in Jerusalem, which had profound spiritual riches, but also profound financial poverty, they would pay up to 16 times the normal rate for a loaf of bread as, um, as people in other parts of the Roman Empire. And it was already more expensive. Most of your income went to food in the ancient world. And so when the Corinthians read this and when other early Christians read this who experienced famine, they knew every loaf of bread is a gift from God. Even the smallest seed to sow, uh, to sow a vegetable, even the smallest loaf of bread itself is a gift from God. There's a, a wonderful book uh, written by, um, based on some amazing research done by uh, a psychologist named John Gottman. Some of you may be familiar with John Gottman. He wanted to know what makes relationships thrive, what makes relationships good, and uh, what separates uh, couples that are uh, married couples and friendships that are troubled and married couples and friendships that thrive. So what they did was John Gottman and his team set up research labs, and essentially they were apartment buildings with lots of cameras and microphones, and they just said, do a normal weekend together. And what they found was that... um, relationships have not huge moments, but little moments. And it was the little moments that mattered because in the little moments, uh, one person in the couple would put out what was called a bid. And a bid was a request for connection, normally in something very mundane, like, would you like a cup of coffee? I'm going to the kitchen. Now, there are three choices that the other person in the relationship has when they receive that bid. The first choice is to lean into the bid. And that is when you say, I would love a cup of coffee. Thank you so much. Or, um, uh, absolutely, let me go with you so that I can get the pastries ready. Okay, that's leaning into the bid. The second choice that the, uh, the person has is to move against the bid. Where you say, why would I want coffee? You know that I'm a tea drinker. And you respond in somewhat of a negative way to, to the person's bid for connection. Now, the third and most damaging way to respond to the bid is just uh, ignoring the bid. You can move toward it, you can move against it, but if you ignore the bid, if you look away, blank expression on your face, um, no verbal response, I'm not moved at all by the fact that you asked me if I wanted coffee, that is the most deflating response that your spouse could get, that your friend could get. What Gottman found was that relationships that thrived where the relationships, the higher, the, the higher percentage moving toward the bid, uh, those are the relationships that thrived. Most of it was in mundane moments. The relationships that did second best were the ones where you moved against the bid, because at least there's some kind of connection. 
the weakest relationships that were the, in most uh, uh, in danger of splitting were the ones where there was ignoring the bid. Now here's what's interesting. Paul is, is pointing out for the Corinthian church and for us, God is bidding for a connection. And he's doing that by providing seed, by providing bread, by providing money. He is bidding, bidding, always bidding for connection. That involves your finances. And if we cannot acknowledge and move toward the bid and say, thank you, God, for moving toward me in Christ. Thank you for expressing your great love for me through this provision of money, through this provision of a car, through this provision of a friend. We miss out on intimacy with God. And so God is going to break through that glass of isolation that we're in, and he's going to continue to make bids. He's going to continue to provide. That is the first uh, that, is, that is where we begin as individuals and as a church in our worship financially, is we just begin to recognize, here is how God's provided through my life and also um, in my life right now. But secondly, God is going to open up intimacy by asking us to give as well. Not only is he going to give and call us to recognize that, but he is going to actually invite us uh, to, to give with him. Um, so why was Paul writing to the Corinthian church and asking for them to take up a collection? There was a church in Jerusalem uh, that, uh, out of which the, the church of Jesus was birthed. And if any of you are familiar with the book of Acts, you'll know that the church in Jerusalem, after the day of Pentecost, took in wave after wave after wave after wave of new converts to the faith. People who were practicing, uh, practicing Jews, who, who were confessing Jesus as Lord, and as a result were ostracized financially and socially from their family, from their support structure. And so you had wave after wave of people coming into the church, many of them already poor, but then losing their family support. So the Jerusalem church had thousands of people in it, Many of them had, had, uh, had profound, profound needs. Many widows were coming in. And in that culture, widows had very little protection financially. In addition to that, Jerusalem was far from food supply. Bread was more expensive. In addition to that, um, it was, uh, it, uh, the, the area was um, economically not as thriving as the rest of the Roman Empire. So you had very little resources in the Jerusalem church financially a high amount of need, and the church in Jerusalem is going, we want to provide. Like, like, we, like we have people in our church who, who, who need finances. They need food. They need the basic things. They need uh, medical care. How are we going to do it? And Paul, who has a big vision, who's been planting churches all over the Roman Empire, says, I know where we'll raise money. We'll raise money uh, among the people of God all over the Roman Empire. So Paul is sailing all over the place going, there's a church in Jerusalem with profound spiritual wealth and profound financial need. Let's give to them. Let's give to the Lord by giving to them. And so in weekly worship environments like this, um, he encouraged them to gather together, to take up an offering, and to, and to, uh, to send it with a Macedonian gift, combine it, and send it to Jerusalem as an act of praise to God. And so um, this uh, giving had um, both relational component, but it also had a liturgical component. Verse 12 says this, For the ministry of this service, um, uh, uh, which uh, the, the word for service is also the word 
from which uh, we get our word for deacon. Um, it is a, it's a formal word for, um, for the, the worship of God's people, and, um, and Paul is referencing this giving as happening in the context of a worship service. He also, um, he also says the ministry, uh, sorry, the ministry which is the, uh, from which we get the word deacon, of the service from which we get the word liturgy, um, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. And Paul is drawing on a rich uh, tradition of worship where people came to worship with a sacrifice. The worship cost them something. And as they gave their sacrifice over to the temple, the sacrifice was understood to be uh, rising like smoke as a pleasing offering to God. It was both liturgical as well as personal, and it was understood to unite the worshipers to the living God. Paul wants to draw upon that and actually build upon that tradition of worship through giving in the Corinthian church. Um, but it also, not only did it, uh, did it overflow in thanksgivings to God, it also united them profoundly with the Jerusalem church. And this is what's amazing. This is part of the sowing bountifully part of the giving. Um, uh, verse 13 says this, By their, meaning the Jer- Jer- Jerusalem church, approval of this liturgy, this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. The grace of God is upon the Corinthian church as they give. The longing and the prayers of the Jerusalem church are among, are, are um, pointed towards the Corinthian church as they give. They are profoundly united. They are finding profound camaraderie and intimacy with God's people and with the living Lord himself. Uh, Paul is essentially saying, hey, look, there is a way for you to go from isolation into intimacy. The Corinthian church uh, was not resisting this call. They ended up giving to the Jerusalem church. Uh, But Paul had to kind of challenge them. We need the same challenge as well. We need the same challenge as well because... Uh, As we were talking about before, it is tempting for us to separate our worship of God from uh, from our giving to God. Um, When when Laura and I were finally married, uh, we we found one way of beginning our financial intimacy, and that was by the giving of rings. And whereas Laura, when she whipped out her credit card, she was saying symbolically, and said literally out loud, I'm financially independent. I'm independently wealthy. Um, when she gave me this ring, what she was saying was, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. And when I gave her a wedding ring, when I gave her the engagement ring, that's exactly what I was saying too. I'm not going to hold anything back. All that I have is yours as well. Um, the rings were a starting place. The rings were a promise. The rings were a statement but they weren't the ending place. Um, Why does God, uh, and and look, we had a baby as a result, okay? (laughs) Um, And she's a daddy's girl, let me tell you. So she's having a hard time. Um, Why do we, why does the church uh, teach that uh, that we should tithe? Um, It's not so the church can enrich itself. It is a way for, uh, first of all, it, it allows the local church to exist. Without the tithe, we could not exist. But most importantly, 
it is a way for us to give a wedding ring to the Lord, not to earn salvation, but to express that we believe in it. Not to earn God's love, but to express that we're receiving it. And it's not the ending point, it's the starting point. So for some of you, you're at a place where tithe is a new thing. And I want to encourage you that, that uh, a tithe is, uh, is uh, not something that, um, uh, it, it's not something that you necessarily have to feel in the moment uh, is an overflow of your expression to the Lord. When I gave a ring to Lord, when she gave a ring to me, we were pre-deciding that we were going to be financially linked together, that we were going to, to live in financial intimacy. We were saying, all that I have is yours, and I'm saying that through this expensive gift. I'm expressing that through that, this, this costly gift. When we set aside 10% of our income and give it to the Lord uh, liturgically in worship, we are saying, I have pre-decided that I am in covenant with you, um, I am responding to your covenant call on my life, and I am taking the first step of economic union with you. Now, if Laura and I were to stop giving gifts to each other after we were married, something would be wrong. We always need to refresh that expression of financial intimacy. And so there may be all kinds of various ways that the Lord calls you to be generous in His kingdom. There will be many instances where the Lord will give you extra and call you to give that extra to potentially... Uh, even like sponsor a child um, through, um, through Kids Alive International or Compassion International. Uh, maybe he'll ca- uh, call you to give to a needy family that you're aware of. There's all kinds of ways that the Lord calls us to uh, financially participate with him. The tithe is a starting place. For some of us, we've given the wedding ring, we have been tithing, um, but we, we've missed out, we've thought of that as a rule rather than as a living relationship. And a tithe is the beginning, not the ending, of our, of our worship uh, to the Lord financially. It's the beginning of that relationship. Now, I said to, to many of you last week, and I'll say it again now, as a pastor, why am I saying this? Not to manipulate you, uh, not to enrich the church, uh, but to, uh, but to uh, shepherd you. Um, and so at any point, uh, if you feel manipulated, you need to tell me. Because my job right now, my job in this series, my role is to shepherd all of us, myself included, to a place of greater generosity with the Lord, to a place of greater spiritual health with the Lord. Because when we separate our finances from our worship, we are not in a good place. We are not in a healthy place. But also let me, let me tell you that this is not a way of earning God's approval. It is a way of receiving God's approval and going deeper with the Lord. He has told us, all that I have is yours. And he's saying that in a number of different ways if we, if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. And he's calling us today, and he's calling us in our life to say the same thing to him. All that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.